Thanks for listening. In the show notes will be attached how you can read more of Carlos's work. Uh, I read a few samples from his two um, novels. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a bit fried right now. I've had a rough week. Um, I did fumble a lot, and I just did not have the um, the effort to like fully edit it this time. Um, I'm not trying to be sloppy, not on purpose. Uh, it's just been, it's been a rough week, but I just wanted to still get the episode out to you. And I'm also still learning as a podcaster. Uh, it just takes a lot of time and I'm, this is not my full-time job. I'm doing many other things right now. Um, but thanks for listening and I will see you next week. And I don't know who next week's author is going to be. So if you have a short story or if you have a book that you're trying to promote, reach out to me and we will work something up. All right. Good night.
Hello everybody and welcome back to Once Upon a Terror. I'm your host Adelina Hill and this week we have horror author Carlos E. Rivera. I hope I pronounced your name right. I apologize if I did not. Um, but today we're going to be looking at some of his writing. He has given me a sample of just a little bit of everything that he's written and I'm just going to read through it. Uh, but let's get started with this interview. Once Upon a Time. Hi, my name is Carlos E. Rivera. I'm a horror author from Costa Rica, and I'm currently publishing my horror trilogy, White Harbor, through Slashic Horror Press. Um, so what can I say about me? Well, I, I grew up in a small town uh, near the coast of Costa Rica, named Siquires. So uh, growing up in that small town uh, as a queer kid, uh, also a queer introverted kid, it meant uh, I spent a lot of time alone. I had my, my small group of friends, but in general, I spent that time uh, alone, kind of uh, reading, watching movies, uh, getting myself lost into all sorts of fictional worlds. So anything that had to do with horror, uh, fantasy, science fiction, that was uh, my way for me to escape the, the reality of a kind of like a lonely, bullied kid and just uh, letting my creativity go crazy. So um, that was kind of like me growing up and that's what resulted in me wanting to one day become a writer. Uh, and that's where I am right now. Well, currently my main focus is on the trilogy right now. I'm working on book two of, of the White Harbor trilogy, but uh, I released a while back um, a novella that is related to to the trilogy. It's its own self-contained story named I Am The Door. But even though it's a self-contained story, it ties to uh, the events of the trilogy. Um, it was released as a godless exclusive. Uh, and uh, it has to do with a family uh, in 1968 that move in to one of the town's most famous haunted houses, to put it that way. So one of the things I plan to do is, uh, before each novel comes out, uh, just like I did with I Am The Door, I plan to release uh, a novella that, once more, it's its own story, but some of the events there uh, will enrich what is happening in the trilogy. So um, uh, I will announce those as they come. There's also this uh, short story that I wrote and published at Amazon. It's called Esperanza. Uh, and this is a very short horror story, like cosmic horror story, that is based on um, a Costa Rican superstition uh, about a, a type of bug that can give you good luck and what happens when that doesn't go so well. 
So if you'd like to read a very short and, and really scary story, there's Esperanza available in, on Amazon. So that's, that's pretty much all I have coming up right now. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, to talk about my work. So the story will not just follow Peter and his mother, but it will also follow a group of Peter's childhood friends. So each of them has their own history, their own uh, trauma, their own motivations uh, now that they're adults, uh, because one of the big themes in the story is generational trauma and how uh, your parents' sins and their parents' sins inform who you are today. So uh, each of these characters will have an important part to play in the events that will unfold throughout the trilogy. Uh, you will also have a look at the town's tragic past and history, because this is something that has been happening for a very long time, and it's finally coming to a head uh, through the events in this story. So hopefully it will be something that people will really enjoy. The story comes out August 15th, the first book, and I'm currently working on book two. And, uh, you know, really looking forward to, to people reading this and hopefully enjoying it. So I grew up in this very small town named Siquiris in Costa Rica. I'm, I'm Costa Rican. And there's this thing about growing up in a small town that uh, kind of like every corner has this little horror or scary tale attached to it, like uh, previous events that actually happened or things that people made up. Uh, so you, you kind of grow up in this little aura of, of fear and tales and folklore. Uh, and, and I think that influenced me a lot and a lot of my sensibilities when it comes to, to horror. Um, I mean, I, I, one little tale is like I had these cousins that lived close to a river uh, in Securis. And I think everybody's familiar with the, the tale of La Llorona uh, that's very prevalent in all of Latin America. Uh, and it's very similar in every country, but my cousins used to actually say that that was the actual river where La Llorona's children drowned. And, uh, you know, that they actually saw La Llorona from time to time there. And uh, so uh, growing up in a, in a small town like that, with all of those stories, that, that really primes you for horror. Then as I grew up and I started getting into reading, uh, that's when I started finding like uh, things like scary stories to tell in the dark, um, Stephen King, uh, Dean Kuntz. Um, I used to watch, you know, horror movies like every single week. I used to love horror since I was a little kid. Um, uh, then I started getting into manga, stuff like Junji Ito. So there's, I, I like this idea of taking all of that horror from all over the world, from all of these diverse sources and mixing them up with what I learned was horror when I was a, a little kid. Uh, and I guess that's, um, that's my influence uh, as a writer. That's where I got inspired. So I guess it's, it's something that's kind of always been there. And I know that that's like the most cliche answer I can possibly give. But, uh, when, when I was a kid and, and I used to play, like with action figures with my friends and, and my, my cousins. Uh, we used to play like with these, uh, I don't know, like Ninja Turtles, Ghostbusters, He-Man, and, um, you know, Transformers, things like that. And I was always the one that made up the story of what was happening or, or what we were playing. 
and uh, I always was the one that made up the progression of what we were doing. And um, I remember very clearly this cousin of mine that told me, like, why is it that you like to kill off your favorite character? Every time we play, your favorite character dies. So <laughs> I guess I that was my, my beginning as a horror writer. I just really loved killing off characters. Um, but like more seriously, uh, when, when I was in, in school, in high school, I used to draw in my notebooks like these uh, short action stories like with ninjas, with superheroes, things like that. And they were really violent. And uh, I used to write like the story before I started drawing. Uh, and then when I was 20, we're talking 2000, 2001, so maybe 21 years old, I wrote this story called uh, Memories of Age. It was a short story that I published for free on this website that I used to have. And like 5,000 people read that. And I, I'm not saying that like to brag because you have to remember that at that time, first of all, it was a very short story. It was free. And at the time, there was no self-publishing or no ebooks to to speak of. At, at least I don't think so. So there was more of an audience and less of a com less of less competition to get people to read. So, but uh, for me, that was a really big way to start writing, uh, and I got some really cool feedback. But still, I just kind of kept that story there, and uh, I didn't come back to it until uh, until I was like 40, 41. I'm 43 now, and that story is what's becoming my my debut novel, White Harbor. Um, so I'm, that's I guess a really long way of saying like when I started and when I grew as a as a writer. Sorry for the long answer, by the way. <laughs> Chapter four of I Am the Door by Carlos E. Rivera. Jonathan tried eating his Fruit Loops, but couldn't get through the first spoonful. He chewed and chewed, switching the sugary cir circles around his mouth until finally spitting them back into the bowl. He headed up the stairs to go lie down. As he crossed the hall, he saw Sadie playing on the front lawn with her dolls. Nelson was probably in the kids' room, lying on a comforter on the floor next to his mother as she unpacked things from boxes and sorted through them. Reaching the bedroom... Jonathan sagged onto his blankets. His head hadn't even settled on the pillow when he fell into a drunken, uneasy, suffocating sleep. He felt he couldn't breathe. He could feel pain in his hands, as if they were curling inward with arthritic tension. Somehow, he understood that this was not something from inside the dream, but his physical body reacting to something in the dream, something he was seeing that his mind refused to show him. He lay face up, eyes shut, Arms pressed close to his body. His hands, in an epileptic paralysis, were claw-like, trembling and tense. His toes were curled and tense. He could feel his buttocks pressed tight with stress. His heart thumped fast, hard, loud. He could imagine his ribcage breaking open and his heart leaping out of his chest and onto the bed, for the sheets got soaked in arterial blood. His... <clears throat> Pardon me. His teeth were pressed tightly, grinding against each other, jaw locked in place. A moan escaped his throat, a pleading, fearful moan. I need to see it, he thought, commanding his brain. I don't want to see it, but I need to see it. Not seeing it is worse. Not seeing it is worse. Not seeing it is his eyes opened. Seeing was worse. 
Chapter 5 of I Am the Door Penny sat on the floor of her kid's room, unpacking some of Nelson's clothes and putting them in a small chest of drawers next to his crib. Nelson, inside the crib, was content, watching, was content, watching a small mobile with little plush animals hanging in front of his face. Once she finished with the box, before moving to the next one, she disassembled it and folded it flat for later disposal. As she was about to start on the next box, more clothes, a kneeing wail caught her attention, freezing her soul. It came from the master bedroom. It was her husband's voice, but it sounded distorted, like slowing down a spinning record where all that's being played was the sound of a man screaming. Instead of immediately reacting, she froze. The sound wasn't normal. It didn't sound fully human. It was a preserve... It was a pervasive... Perverse abdominal howl. The image was in her mind of some prehistoric mammal, not quite evolved to be considered an ape, attempting to scream for help. No words, just a rising and falling noise of alarm coming from vocal cords she recognized as her husband's. Jonathan, she cried as she sprung to her feet and ran out of the room. When he opened his eyes and his gaze adjusted, Jonathan found himself staring into something inexplicable. Just above the headboard, on all fours, on the wall behind the bed, was his son, Nelson. But not really. Yes, it was a baby. And he could recognize his son's face anywhere. But Nelson's entire body was charcoal black. There were no shades to this color. No sheen of perspiration, like one would see on human skin. It was matte black, as if absorbed all light. It stared straight at him with silvery blue eyeballs. He couldn't look away from those eyes cold, empty, soulless, like empty spaces from the creature's face, emitting a lifeless glow, will-o'-the-wisps in a shadowy swamp. He saw a long, black tongue, almost half the size of the entire baby, emerge repulsively from a drooling mouth filled with crooked teeth, and saw it lick its own face, as if savoring what was to come. That face was filled with such malice it made him feel weak and vulnerable. He was immobilized prey at the mercy of a predator with absolute control. Jonathan couldn't move. His body felt shriveled and compressed. All his joints ached at once and his eyes were fixed on the abomination on the wall right above his head. It moved one of its tiny baby hands, velvety non-reflective black like the rest of its body, and put the fingers on the bed headboard as if it was ready to crawl towards him. These didn't look like real infant fingers. They looked lumpy, joints bending at slightly off angles, tiny broken fingernails, gnarled, malformed, missing entirely from some fingers. Everything in that tire, rubber, artificial state of black. The memory of his baby boy grasping his index finger with his perfect little hands, contrasting with these horrid, fallacious smiles, prompting Jonathan to scream, but his mouth wouldn't open. He was paralyzed as if by some venom. Tears streamed down the sides of his face, only the corners of his mouth opened, just barely, to let out a terrified moan. His body became a pressure cooker. Boiling fear, bubbling terror, he couldn't let it out. It continued to build and build inside him, trying to find an outlet, but he couldn't even fully open his mouth to produce the cry of terror he so desperately needed to exercise from his body. And there were those eyes, those undeniable eyes an exorable, hopeless blue that negated any other source of light. The long tongue retreated into its mouth and an ungodly grin took shape on the baby's face, a very 
adult vicious grin that sent chills down his spine. A grin filled with teeth angled every which way and piled onto each other. Teeth he knew his infant baby didn't have. He could see the individual tooth, but they were as dark and unreflective as the rest of its body. The creature moved its other little hand, then one leg, then the other. It now had both hands on the headboard. And another low and helpless moan escaped the corner of its lips. Not loud enough to be heard by anyone. The baby creature crawled closer. Its blasphemous grim was now mere inches from his face. He could now see the monster wasn't crawling on the wall, but growing out of it. Jonathan could see the point where its tiny knees touched the wall, and there was the slightest hint of it fusing into the wall, into a black patch of strange mold that spread over the wall and the ceiling like a revolting snail's trail. As adrenaline fueled his terror, he saw more details in the black mold. He noticed hints of tiny, closed baby eyes on certain parts of the walls and the ceiling, the eyeballs rolling frantically under the eyelids. Tiny infant hands and individual fingers and toes wiggled and curled at random places on the matte black surface. He saw hairs, mouths, and tiny black teeth. It was as if the charcoal stain had been learning to form the shapes that would make up a baby as it spread over the room, but had failed repeatedly until it managed the unnatural abomination now crawling towards him with its repulsive, sinister grin. Jonathan moaned and wept in desperation and fear, but the scream wouldn't leave his chest no matter how hard he tried. He saw the small baby hand reach towards him. Seeing it so close, he could make out just how it made the effort to recreate a human baby, but had failed completely. The artificial material that made up its body was liquid, trying to be a solid. It emulated the texture and flexibility of flesh, but if it were to stand still, it wouldn't be any different from a statue. A body carbon copy of his baby boy, offensive and evil. The second he felt cold, dusty touch of those fingers, the pressure in his chest finally pushed through the clenched teeth, and something louder than the laminated moan burst through his mouth. It was still a gargled anesthetized sort of scream, a wail attempting to fold words that seemed too big for a barely open mouth and unresponsive tongue. Jonathan sobbed as the baby's hand caressed his hair gently, lovingly, like it knew him, loved him. The softness of its touch was more frightening than it had leapt towards him to bite his throat off. It loved him. It owned him. He sobbed. He wailed. He shook. His arms stayed twisted against his chest, inward and claw-like and useless. And those blue eyes looking into his own, pulling him in, pulling him into depths he would fall into forever. Lost in the blue. Lost in the cold. Lost in its love. Finally, he felt the rise of a singular high-pitched shriek gurgling from his throat. Jonathan! He gasped, and his eyes flew open at the sound of his wife's voice. She was standing at the door looking at him with alarm. The baby was gone. The charcoal mold with its nauseating body parts was gone. Jonathan wiped tears from his face, his hands, no longer useless claws. He could feel his pillow was wet, and the bed was soaked with sweat. And he saw Penny's eyes move towards his shorts. He had pissed himself. The Local Truth by Carlos E. Rivera Chapter 9 The Grieving Mother, Roberta 1989 As he came in from the freezing cold and closed the door behind him, Peter had never in his life been so glad to be home. He expected to be quickly enveloped in his house's warmth, but was surprised to find while inside 
It had been warmer than the post-blizzard weather he walked in from. The house was still colder than he expected. Was the heater on the fritz? He took a quick survey of his home. He was taken aback by how dark the house was for winter. Peter soon realized the electricity was off. Out of nowhere came a soft popping sound, like a tiny birdshot pellet falling on a polished tile surface, and he noticed the fireplace was on, and the wood was crackling and popping as it burned. Mother was sitting on a high-backed chair close to it, with a book resting on her lap and both hands resting on its front cover. She looked like a painting one would hang on a wall in a living room, a living room where another middle-aged woman would sit by the fireplace looking like a painting one would hang on a wall in another living room, where yet another middle-aged woman would sit by the fireplace looking like a painting one would hang on a wall in yet another living room, and another one, and another one, and another one. It's no use, Mr. James. It's middle-aged women all the way down, Peter thought, feeling quite clever but having a challenging time remembering which was the actual quote he was paraphrasing. Turtles, he remembered. It's turtles all the way down. Where did I read that? It's going to drive me crazy. Don't just stand there, boy, Mother said in a sleepy voice, her eyes fixed on the fireplace, immersed in her own thoughts. Come and kiss your mother. Peter hung his leather backpack on a hook by the door and hurried to her side. She slightly raised her cheek, and he gave her a kiss. You're late, she said. I'm... He stammered. I'm sorry, mother. That's fine. She spoke in a pleasant manner, which was not typical for her. Where were you? I stayed a little longer inside the school. I thought I'd wait out the snow until it got better to walk home. Smart boy. She stayed transfixed by the fire, not even turning her head to look at him. The flow of the flame cast a dancing reflection of light on the surface of his eyes. Just don't let it get too late when you do that. Don't let it get dark. Yes, mother. He surveyed the house to make certain that the electricity was off. Was the power cut? Well, of course it was, she said regretfully. She finally managed a fatigued smile in his direction. Your old mother has been distracted these last few days. I forgot. I made the payment this morning, but with all the snow, we probably won't have power through the night. I'm surprised they made you go to school today. He nodded. I heard the other kids saying that. She let out a single chuckle from within her chest and smiled. You heard the other kids, huh? She glanced at him again. They weren't saying it to you, I'd imagine. You heard them talking to each other. They don't talk to me, mother, and I don't talk to them, he said hurriedly. You know that. I know. I'm sorry it has to be that way, but you don't need them, Peter. You don't. She gestured toward a small upholstered banquet to her right in front of the fireplace. Sit. Peter sat down, his arms straight and his hands clinging to the edge of the seat, mystified at the strange mood that had taken over Mother. 2022. Sit, Mother said from her chair by the hospital window, in a tone one would use to address a disobedient dog, soon to be scolded. Peter still had his hand pressed against his cheek from where she backhanded him not five seconds ago. I said, sit, she repeated. The lucidity in her eyes had been one she hadn't he hadn't seen in a long time, and it had only appeared in that stare after commanding him to call her mother as mom was too formal a word for someone of her stature. Uh, Pete, Raymond said from the door, sounding a bit shocked by his mother's sudden physical aggression. Will you be okay? Yes, Peter said, sitting down on a chair next to the bed. His cheeks still felt hot, and he rubbed his hand on it. He kept his eyes on his mother as she was going to stab him in the gut. 
as if he was took us as if it if he so much as took his gaze away from her. I'll be fine, Ray. Cunningham's tonight. Yeah, and Peter felt his friend's reluctance to leave him alone with his mother, even though he couldn't see his face. See you tonight. This crazy lady doesn't. This if this crazy lady doesn't kill you, he imagined his friend thinking immediately after, as Ray's footsteps disappeared into the hallway. So, mother's eyes became barely slits as she gave a knowing smile, studying him intently. He remembered the way his eyes narrowed when she knew he was hiding something, and wouldn't admit it. Did you break that plate? No, mother. He would answer, as shards of dish plateware lay on the floor. Did you tidy up your room? Yes, mother, he would answer, with clothes and toys hurriedly thrown in the closet. Were you playing with yourself in the bathroom? No, mother, he would answer, his skin clammy as he closed the bathroom door behind him, blushing. She would always know. She always knew when he had been bad. Even before she asked, she knew. He would always admit to lying, and he would always pay the price. Nothing, however, could have prepared him for the question that today accompanied those narrowed eyes. How did she die? she asked. For a moment, Peter's eyes widened in utter shock as he stared back at her. She knew. Mother knew. She knew about... My sister was always so meddling, she said. Her hands clasped together on her lap, that dreadful rosary lapped, wrapped around one of them. Taking my son away from me was a sin that could not be forgiven. I knew she'd pay for that. God promised she would. I just didn't expect her to die so soon. What are you now, 18? It took Peter way too long for the shock to move out of his way of the brain synapses needed for him to grasp his mother what his mother was talking about, his aunt Constance, who was well and alive at her home. Mother, Peter said, Aunt Constance isn't dead. Slowly, almost in sections, his mother's face began to quiver, crumble, and twist into a malevolent glower. Malevolent glower. She looked cheated and betrayed. If flames had come out of her ears and nostrils at the corner of her lips, he wouldn't have found it at all surprising. She stood up from her chair quickly with an agility Peter would never have believed her capable of and turned her back on him, indignant. She gazed out the window, and her hands were together under her belly. He could see her shoulders rise and fall as she breathed angrily. I will deal with her, she said. I understand now. That's what the Lord wants. He wants me to handle my family matters. He's already done too much for me. Some burdens must fall on my own shoulders, and I must be strong to carry them, not just bear witness. Mother, stop. Just just please stop. Who died then? She asked softly, almost casually, as if asking who was at the door. Don't lie to me, boy, because you will know it. I know your eyes when you've been crying. You are a weak and sad boy, not a real man. So I know you have been crying a lot, and I know someone dear has passed away. She stared at him over her shoulder. Out with it. Tell your mother who. Her speech trailed off. She stood there with the window to her face, Silent waves of realization radiating out of her. Peter heard a sound come out of her lips, but he didn't hear the actual word until out of nowhere did she repeat it. The bitch, she said. The bitch died, didn't she? She turned her head and gazed at him. Her eyes were filled with a revolting sort of joy. Those were the eyes of a person overcome with gladness of a person who had seen God fulfill a promise and seen their faith rewarded.
Thanks for listening. In the show notes will be attached how you can read more of Carlos's work. Uh, I read a few samples from his two um, novels. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a bit fried right now. I've had a rough week. Um, I did fumble a lot, and I just did not have the um, the effort to like fully edit it this time. Um, I'm not trying to be sloppy, not on purpose. Uh, it's just been, it's been a rough week, but I just wanted to still get the episode out to you. And I'm also still learning as a podcaster. Uh, it just takes a lot of time and I'm, this is not my full-time job. I'm doing many other things right now. Um, but thanks for listening and I will see you next week. And I don't know who next week's author is going to be. So if you have a short story or if you have a book that you're trying to promote, reach out to me and we will work something up. All right. Good night.